You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Our webinar today is to talk about the individual accountability framework and the key actions that employers must take now in implementing the framework. And I'm joined today by four panel members, Niamh Mulholland, who's a partner in the Financial Institutions Group here in Matheson. Niamh has a wealth of experience in advising regulatory clients on all aspects of the regulated environment. She previously worked at the Central Bank of Ireland and has invaluable insights and experience in understanding the CBI's priorities and perspectives, which is really particularly beneficial in the context of implementing the individual accountability framework. Brian Dunn is head of the Employment Pensions and Benefits Group here in Matheson, and Susan Doris Obando, also a senior associate in the Employment Group here in Matheson, and both Brian, Susan, I, and our team of 20 plus lawyers have been working alongside our regulatory colleagues in helping financial institutions and other regulated firms prepare for the individual accountability framework for some time now. And we're also delighted to be joined here today by Magella Walsh. Magella leads the Scotia Bank compliance team in Europe. She has almost 20 years of experience in compliance, having held senior roles in both London and Dublin, and most recently as Ireland head of compliance at Barclays. Prior to moving into compliance, Magella was a firm supervisor at the UK Financial Services Authority. And so Magella is going to share some really useful industry perspectives on the individual accountability framework with us today. And so the purpose of our webinar today really is to look at the main employment considerations that arise out of the individual accountability framework and to take you through what we see as the key steps that employers need to take now in order to get ready for its implementation. And so we look at each of the, the, the main pillars under the individual accountability framework in some detail and, and the key next steps and action points on each of those. But to turn to you, Niamh, first, if I may, many of our attendees will clearly be familiar with the individual accountability framework and what it is. But I think for everyone's benefit, could I please ask you just to provide us with a very high level overview of what the individual accountability is and what it seeks to achieve? Yeah, perfect. Thanks a million, uh, Geraldine, and thanks to everybody for joining us. So we've been uh, discussing this probably in earnest for the last 18 months, but I think it's important to remember that we've been discussing this theme, if you like, since 2018, and really the central bank have been pushing for this reform since that period of time. And it's really a continuation of a lot of the uh, regulatory reforms that we saw after the financial crisis. And I think it's fair to say that we saw a lot of change from a prudential perspective and from a sexual conduct perspective. And this is, if you like, the next layer of that again, where it actually looks at the individual. It looks at the importance of individuals in culture, and that's something the central bank have a key theme on, but they're not alone on that, right? So we have uh, other European regulators speak to it, and certainly the international standards boards have also spoken about how effective regulation, performance of firms themselves, and indeed then the benefit of the wider community has been really enhanced by a framework that speaks to individual accountability. And then I think from the technical side, and certainly the, the side that we advise on most as well is, there's a lot of clarity now that has kind of come from the bill as well. So the bill does seek to make very explicit the standards that are expected for individuals who operate key roles in regulated financial service providers. So a very broad ranging, 
but not entirely new regime. And one, as I said, which we've been working on with, with clients for quite some time. Thanks, Neve. And I know much of the focus has been on the senior executive accountability regime, which is known as SEER, and that this is only one element of the overall individual accountability framework. Could you provide us with an overview of who is within and outside the scope of such requirements? Yeah, exactly. It's really useful pause for thought, Geraldine. So the way I think about the Act is kind of like it's an act in, in four parts. And it's probably worth summarising very briefly some of those, some of which I, I won't dwell on too much because they're obviously a core focus for this webinar from an employment point of view. But if we take a step back and we look at the the piece perhaps that might be the earliest that's commenced, but often doesn't get as much focus, is the uh, amendment of to the Central Bank Act 1942, and what it does is it does a couple of things. It extends the application of the administrative sanctions procedure to persons performing control functions and also to certain holding companies. So this is what we call the breaking of the participation link. And what that will actually mean for everyone is, is that the central bank will no longer have to first prove a, a case or an infringement against a firm or regulated financial service provider before pursuing the individual control function themselves. So that's a, a big step change from the regime as we know it. This change comes with a number of others that are affected on the um, Central Bank Act 1942, which arise out of the Celebsky case, which is interestingly and symbiotic with this webinar, actually arose out of an employment law case, as we know, where the Supreme Court held that the exercise of powers by adjudication officers in the Workplace Relations Commission was an administration of justice within the meaning of Article 37 of the Constitution. So one of the broader impacts of that case and of that decision was that a certain reforms were affected to what we call the Part 3C, the Investigation and Enforcement Section uh, of the, the Central Bank Acts. And one of the key changes that we're seeing from an uh, Individual Accountability Framework Act perspective is that there's now a provision for an application for confirmation by the High Court of a decision in respect of an inquiry under Part 3C and indeed of a, a decision made by the Irish Financial Services Appeals Tribunal, so IFSAT. So that's kind of a key implication and part of the bill that should be considered alongside a number of the procedural changes that will come in terms of regulatory compliance, the conduct of investigations, the independence of those persons. So how the central bank will actually conduct investigations in the future is also covered in this part of the bill. The second part of the bill, which we will look to, and as we've kind of said, it's, it's a key focus for this webinar from an employment point of view, but a good opportunity for us to stress the symbiotic nature of regulatory compliance and employment when we talk about the IAF, is the extension of the central bank's powers to describe business standards and conduct standards. So the central bank have actually published their consultation paper on this. There's a lot more detail on this. And there's a lot of, I think, probably symbiosis with the consumer protection reform as well. And it talks about two things from a business perspective and the business conduct standards. We're really talking about, you know, firms acting in the best interests of a, of a number of entities, right? Their clients, the integrity of the market, their engagement cooperatively and proactively with regulators to ensure they have financial risk controls in place, adequate protection for our client assets and client funds, ensuring that the actors within the firm act with due skill, care and diligence, that's the individual and the consolidated level, and also kind of managing conflicts of interest and any issues with, that would arise in respect of that. So with the business conduct standards are, again, not new. Not any of the words I've said there will be strange to anybody in this audience. But one of the key facets to remember here is that these are now codified. So we do have a, a clarity with 
respect to expectations. But we also know that there's a slightly different meaning when you have them more explicitly codified and put into play to re-emphasize the point, you know, that will impact the firm's compliance. So every single individual actor on a solo basis taken together will affect the regulatory compliance of the firm with the business standards. But also you can't really think or talk from a regulatory perspective about the enforcement of conduct and additional conduct standards at the individual level without thinking about it through the firm lens. And also, as we will say here this morning, thinking about the implications from an employment law perspective as well. So it's important that we kind of put the conduct standards front and centre. And these, and I'll come to this slightly in a second, but unlike SEER, these are going to have almost universal application from the beginning. So plenty of work to understand the implications and the methods which firms will approach the application of these standards. I'll turn then to the third pillar, which is fitness and probity. So again, I think the fitness and probity section is a really good uh, reminder to us that the Individual Accountability Framework Act is an amendment and restatement Act. So again, we've had fitness and probity as part of our regulatory universe since 2010. Everyone on the call has been applying it, interpreting it and engaging with it for a number of years. So the reforms that are contemplated under the Act are essentially threefold. Uh, so the FNP regime will now be extended to holding companies of regulated financial services entities. So we're going up the, the chain one to firms that are held by a, by a holding company. At the time of authorization, the central bank will be empowered to have increased information seeking powers. So when a firm is applying to become regulated in Ireland, the central bank will have more opportunity to ask questions and find information with respect to fitness and probity. And finally, and again, a piece of this that got most of attention and commentary is the certification process. So the new certification regime essentially requires that regulated financial service providers must not permit someone to perform a control function unless there's a certificate from them confirming their fitness and probity. And that fitness and probity cannot essentially be stated in the certificate unless the firm is satisfied on reasonable grounds that a person meets the required FMP standards and also, this is a bit more dynamic, so it has to be revoked if the firm is no longer satisfied. So, again, it's an enhancement on what's there already, maybe an increased formalisation on what's there already. There is certainly a lot to think about on what does satisfied and reasonable grounds mean for every firm. But again, from a compliance perspective, we're, we're again in the, the territory of hand and glove with looking at this from a, an employment law point of view. And finally, as you mentioned, Geraldine, the infamous seer. In fact, the poor IF bill was generally known as CR in shorthand for quite a long time, but it is a key facet of it. We will know that in the initial phase that only a certain section of firms will be captured by it. So that's credit institutions, excluding credit unions, insurance undertakings, excluding reinsurance captives and SPBs. And then MIFID investment firms that underwrite on a firm commitment basis steal no account or are authorised to hold client monies and third country branches of all of those. So three things just again to highlight for each of those is that those in-scope firms, there will be inherent, so the very obvious, the CFO looks after the financial statements, and then allocated responsibility. And again, this is going to be a matter of some discussion. It is part of the consultation process, and certainly firms are already looking at, you know, there as is inherent and allocated responsibilities because people have been carrying out duties for quite a long time in most regulated firms. So there's a bit of compare what you have to the expected standard. We're also very familiar with the idea of the statement of responsibility and a management responsibilities map, both of which were a feature of the senior managers and certification regime in the UK. So again, the statement of responsibilities to each individual and then collectively, as well as with a firm lens, the management responsibilities map, which is our, your governance, control, infrastructure and reporting. 
And the final piece here that I will just highlight, but we will certainly talk about it quite a lot throughout the course this morning, is the idea of the duty of responsibility, which kind of sits front and centre in this regime, where every, if you like, every PCF or SEF as they are in the new regime, with inherent or allocated responsibilities, will have a duty to take steps that are reasonable in all the circumstances for that person to ensure that the aspect of the business for which they're responsible is conducted in a way to avoid contravention of its obligations under financial services legislation. I tripped up over myself twice with that definition, right? So that'll give you an indication again as to a number of the points of information here. What are reasonable steps, for example, is is really going to be a, a key point of discussion that I'm sure the rest of the panelists will engage on today. That's great. Thank you, Neve. That's a really helpful overview to set the scene. Brian, just turning to you now to focus on, I suppose, the key actions and steps that employers need to take now to ensure compliance. I know that employers have for some time been keen to start on their mm-hmm. IAF or SEER rollout, but have been waiting on the detail to progress this. And so I suppose the question for you is, do employers finally have what they need now to get started? And if so, where do they start? Thanks, Geraldine, and good morning, everybody. So to answer the first part of your question, yes, definitely we are ready to go now. I think employers have more than enough information to be able to get on with things at this point. A lot has happened in the last month. The legislation itself has been signed off, so we have clarity and certainty on that. We now have the draft regulations in regard to the certification process and the SEER framework. And perhaps most importantly, we have the the detailed guidance from the CBI in regard to how all of this regime will be interpreted. And when you look at that document, there's quite a lot of useful commentary and insight into how the different aspects will operate. So I think while it has been frustrating for employers who were keen to progress with this, they have all the information now to get moving on it. And actually, to go back to one of Neve's points, when you look at the timetable involved here, part of this proposal will be in effect by the end of the year, which is probably three, if not six months earlier than we actually thought it would be. So employers are left with a very large body of work to complete in an even shorter time scale than perhaps we had anticipated. So it is time to get moving. The second part of your question then is probably the more critical one, and that is, well, where do we start? What do we do today? There's so many different work streams within this and different aspects to it. But if I take SEER as one large chunk, and that's where a lot of employers probably are focusing a lot of their attention at the moment, What I could do is maybe bring you through like an eight-step project plan as to how employers should go about this and what will get them from where they are right now to where they need to be at the end of December when this comes into effect. So with the SEER aspect, the very first step is really identifying who is the relevant pool of people involved here. The legislation talks about the senior executive functions, but by and large, that means your PCF cohort. There is scope for that to include individuals who exert significant influence, but by and large, it's your PCF group. They're the people you will need to prepare a statement of responsibility for. The next step then is just mapping out what each one of them currently does. And that's really the first draft of what will become your formal statement of responsibility. But just map it out based on what you believe they currently do right now. In parallel, step three is mapping out your current responsibility management map. And when we talk about that, I think it should track the draft regulations. So you should do it by legal entity. It should be able to identify who the the SEFs are by name, the INEDs in that organization as well. And it should also build in where the various board subcommittees feed into the decision-making process. 
Most employers probably already have done those first three steps. So it's kind of the next four or five steps that really are the homework from this point in. And the next step then is reviewing the draft regulations against the mapping exercise you've already done. And that's really an audit exercise in identifying what you have against what you are required to have. Because the draft regulations, in particular schedules one and two, set out what Neve talked about, the inherent responsibilities and also the prescribed responsibilities. So they are the aspects of this that the CBI will be looking at to make sure you have covered everything and no responsibilities have fallen between the cracks. It will also help you identify the gaps and it may even help you identify where there's a mismatch. Perhaps you have the wrong executive holding a particular responsibility and it might be something that triggers a reshuffle, so to speak, where you decide, well, actually, the better way to do this would be for Brian no longer to be responsible for A, B and C and maybe Geraldine should do that. So that brings you on to step five, which is designing your go live structure. So that's really, again, bringing this exercise to the point where you identify where you want to get to. And I think at that point, you can again look at what is the optimum structure for you. But the really difficult step in this process is step six. That's the one where you engage for the first time with the senior executive functions in regard to signing off their statements of responsibility. And in my view, and maybe I say this as an employment lawyer, that's the aspect that is going to take the most time. It's going to be the most contentious. And if any part of this process does lead to litigation or risk, it's probably going to come out at this point. And the reason I say that is, well, I'll give you a couple of anecdotes around it. First of all, we know from talking to an in-house employment council in the UK who ran a similar project when they were rolling out the SMCR, he was seconded from his role to a compliance function for two years. And when we asked him what he would do differently if he was doing it again, he said, I would have started even earlier because he said the people aspect of this just took so much time. Secondly, we know from one client in Ireland that was well intended in this and started on the process back in 2020. When they started to identify responsibilities where there was overlap and try to unravel that, they ran into collective grievances. Because from an employer's perspective, it might make perfect sense to tidy up the responsibilities and get them all in the right box. But from the perspective of the individual who is listening to that at an executive level, they may see that as somebody trying to undermine their responsibilities or curtail the scope of their role. And it could well bring an employer to the point of constructive dismissal claim. So I think employers who are getting ready for this stage of the process need to understand that this stage will take possibly six months. It might take longer. And it could well result in some of the people you're currently dealing with exiting the business because they're not prepared to agree to the changes that you want to implement. And we can perhaps talk about that later on as to how do you actually handle that if an employee refuses? Because depending on the degree of change involved, you may well require the employee's consent to agree to it. Once you get beyond that stage, you then have to engage externally with the CBI because all of the documentation in the guidance suggests that these documents have to be signed off by the CBI before they go live. So that means getting all of this done before the 1st of January next. And again, drawing on experience that we saw in the UK, something like 75% of the drafts that were submitted to the regulator in the UK were sent back for further revision. And I think that will, again, give you a sense of how much time this could take if you have to re-engage with the board, if you have to re-engage with the senior executive functions as regards changes and tweaks to the documentation. And 
all likelihood is none of this draft documentation is going to be ready in a hurry. It's going to take until September, October, maybe even later in the year. So I do wonder to what extent the resources are there, both within organisations and the CBI, to actually handle that bottleneck to make sure everybody can get through that volume in a short period of time running up to the year end. The last step then, step eight, is just embedding the new structure. And that's kind of living with this into the future, making the necessary changes to corporate governance to get ready for what it involves. That's really helpful. Thank you, Brian. And if we just go back for a minute to the requirement to have a responsibility map and a statement of responsibilities for those in scope for the SEER regime, I think it would be really helpful for our listeners if you could expand on the content and the format of what those documents will look like and also perhaps provide practical guidance on how these documents should be prepared in practice. To get there, yeah. Well, again, the CBI guidance has quite a lot of detail around each of them, and I think that's definitely helpful, and I would recommend that people have a close look at them. On the statements of responsibility, the CBI guidance has a helpful template. It's unpopulated, so I suppose it's not all that realistic as yet, but it's certainly helpful in the sense that it doesn't seem to be unduly complex. The format at its core simply requires that the employer identify the inherent responsibilities, the prescribed responsibilities, and any other responsibilities. It also emphasizes the point that the focus is on accountability. So it doesn't need to outline what skill set or what competencies are required for the role. It's really just about what is Brian responsible for, and that's what should be covered in it. On an admin level, it talks about the document being kept up to date on a regular basis, it should be dated. It should have a, a version on it. And I think that goes to the CBI's ability at some point in the future, if necessary, to look back and identify who was responsible for what on a given date if there is a contravention identified. It should also be signed by the PCF, which makes sense. And then a theme coming through from a lot of this is that it needs to be regularly reviewed. And I would interpret that to mean not just by the employee, but also by the employer. So processes will need to be built to build in some sort of checks and balances around that to make sure that it doesn't become out of date. In terms of the next steps that you could look at when you're putting together the statements of responsibility, I think you're back to the kind of audit process I just outlined, the eight-step plan. But just to dig into that a little bit more, I, I suppose we shouldn't underestimate the amount of time this can take. And there's a very useful report from Finance UK that was issued in 2019, three years after their senior manager regime was introduced. And if any of you are interested in what living and working and operating in this kind of regime will be like, I would suggest you have a look at that report because there's some really useful insights in it. But to bring it back to the question around preparing the statements of responsibility, something like 42% of the managers involved claimed that they actively negotiated their statement of responsibility. And in a separate survey, I think it was 82% said that they collaboratively negotiated. And I'm not sure what the difference is, but either way, it does illustrate the point. This isn't going to be an exercise in simply committing to writing what you think somebody does and getting them to sign it off. It's going to be a back and forth. It's going to take time. And even on a practical level, to get ready for this, Another point that came out of this was I think 61% of the senior managers had engaged in quite extensive queries around the level of adequacy of the resources in departments they were going to be responsible for. So to me, that means you need to be ready for a manager saying, well, before I sign that, 
before I sign myself off as being the PCF responsible for risk, I want to make sure that there's enough people in that team or that there's enough people with the right experience for that team to operate effectively. So you could well find yourselves having to recruit more people in to get the PCF happy to sign off on the responsibilities. And that's something to bear in mind. Training will probably also be required for some of the PCFs to get them comfortable with this. And I'm not just talking about the statements of responsibility. It applies across the board. And we know as well, going back to the UK parallels, that a lot of employers there made independent legal advice available for the senior managers to help them understand the extent of the responsibility. Now, on one level, I think that really helps because it's even harder then, I think, for the employee to say, I didn't really understand it. I'm not sure to what extent they can credibly say that, but having received the benefit of independent legal advice, it definitely helps. On the management responsibility map, there isn't a template in the document. There's an infographic. I'm not sure how helpful it is. And I think the reason why the CBI hasn't given a template is because each organization is just so specific to its own way of working and so complex at this stage in the sector. We did see the same thing in the UK where originally there was no template given, but ultimately the regulator did because I think there was just so much uncertainty around the level of detail required. But to give you a sense of that, documentation talks about establishing a comprehensive document that's kept up to date that sets out the management responsibility map. It doesn't need to duplicate each of the PCF's various responsibilities. Instead, it should simply summarize them. So I think that'll cut down some of the burden as well. Like the statements of responsibility, it does need to be kept up to date. It does need to be dated and there should be a version number on it. Again, going back to the ability to see who was responsible for what on a given day. And then finally, it's subject to regular review. Now, I could probably spend half an hour talking about what exactly should go into it. I won't take up half an hour doing that, but there is a very useful, almost like a checklist in section 2612 of the CBI guidance. And there's then some really useful questions that employers should ask themselves when they're looking at this document, which I think will help drive a lot of the planning around and thinking on this. But just to give you a kind of a snapshot of some of the content in it, it talks about including a description of the key aspects of the firm's significant activities. You must identify the matters that are reserved for the board. It should include an org chart. It should identify the names of all the, the firm PCF holders. Where there is outsourcing involved, it should identify which PCF is responsible for that. And there's a couple of other aspects as well, but that will give you a, a sense of how far it goes. Then looking at how you prepare for that from now, you're back to the same eight-step project plan on that. One really obvious obstacle that I think employers are going to run into, and I can't see a way around this for now, is you can't sign off on your management responsibility map until you've signed off on the last statement of responsibility, because one is a, an aggregate of the other, really. So you are, as an employer, kind of at the ransom of the slowest member of the senior executive function. And if one of them is really engaged in back and forth detailed negotiation on their map, then I think a lot of employers are going to be pushed to the wire on this. Once you get beyond January and you're up and running, two of the main obligations will be to make sure you have appointed somebody who's going to be responsible for keeping this up to date. And secondly, that there's a good process in place to make sure that happens. Any organization that's going to be within the regime is big enough such that they'll be fast moving and responsibilities can change all the time. So that's going to be a really important one to keep on top of.
That's great, Brian. Thank you. And I think really good guidance there on, on what exactly employers can get started with. Neve touched briefly on the duty of responsibility. And I think this, in our experience, is something that a lot of employers <clears throat> are also grappling with. Can you give a brief run through of who this applies to and what are the challenges and issues that are causing concern in practice? And also, how does a senior executive discharge this duty of responsibility? Okay, yes, it's definitely one of the most controversial aspects of the the proposals going back to when we first started talking to clients on this in, in 2019 or 2020. And it's probably the one on a personal level that has led to what is even referred to in the CBI documentation as the chilling effect. The duty of responsibility, insofar as we're talking about SEER, applies to all senior executive functions. So you're back to your PCF cohort there. And perhaps as if to emphasize the solemnity of this duty, the documentation that we've seen from the CBI identifies it as an enforceable legal duty in respect of any such responsibilities. But at its core, if I could summarize it, and as Neve said, it does go back to the 2010 legislation, it's a requirement for any senior executive function to take reasonable steps in regard to any responsibility that is under their wing to make sure that it's conducted in compliance with the financial services legislation. Now, that drives the question then, as you put it, as to, well, how do you discharge this duty? And the CBI's consistent answer on this has always been, well, you follow reasonable steps. And that does make sense in theory. But I think the problem for executives who are in these roles and what's causing the chilling effect is as follows, that there's no sense that executives are trying to shirk their responsibility or that they're running away from what they have signed up to. And likewise, there's certainly no evidence that people are at this level, decide in the morning that they're going to come into their office and commit a breach. If anything, it's the contrary. PCFs are crying out for guidance on what reasonable steps they can take. And they are looking for guidance from their employer. They're looking for it from the CBI and from the industry generally. But the problem is, no matter what steps you follow, no matter how proactive or diligent you think you have been in complying with your duties, there's no categoric certainty. There's no magic formula, which if you follow, you know you will be immune from the risk of an admin sanction. And I think that's the difficulty. Now, again, we could spend a lot of time talking about the, the guidance in the, the CBI consultation paper around the duty of responsibility. And in fairness to the, the, the CBI, there's about 12 pages of quite detailed commentary around the factors that they will look at and how an employee can go about the reasonable steps. It also says as an introduction, that their approach to implementation will focus on proportionality, predictability, and reasonable expectations. And likewise, it even acknowledges that perfection is not the required standard. I suspect some people in the sector might feel that sometimes that is what is expected of them when they're engaging with the CBI. But overall, the problem here is that individuals feel that it's hard for them to put the finger on what exactly do I have to do that will get me to that point. But to give you a sense of some of the factors that the CBI will look at, they will talk about the, the nature and scale and complexity of the organization when you are deciding what is a reasonable step in a given circumstance. It also talks about the level of knowledge and the level of experience that can reasonably be expected of somebody in a given role, and then comparing that to their actual level of knowledge and experience. And it acknowledges sometimes that there is a learning curve in certain roles. The other factors to be taken into account include the robustness or effectiveness of the systems that are in place. But related to that, it also talks about 
the extent to which the individual at the centre of the contravention could have influenced that. So to me, that quite fairly means if you are blaming the systems in place for the contravention, but you were the executive responsible for making sure the systems worked, well, then clearly you can't benefit from that. A couple of other observations I'd make, and finally, Geraldine, both positive and negative, there is a very helpful concession in here where the CBI acknowledged that they're not going to apply current standards retrospectively. And anecdotally, we do know some people who were at senior levels during the financial crisis feel that certain issues that at the time were probably decisions made in line with prevailing judgment, many years later, that can be used against them. So it's interesting to see that being acknowledged in the report that current standards won't be applied retrospectively. On the negative, there is a suggestion in there that PCFs at this level should be testing the quality and satisfying themselves as to the quality of input that they get from their expert colleagues in regard to a particular decision they have to make in discharging their responsibilities. Now, I wonder, does that mean in practice PCFs are expected to be constantly second-guessing or challenging their expert colleagues in regard to matters that are outside their remit? And I wonder, on a practical level, how realistic that is and whether senior executives have the capacity and the space and, and the ability to be able to do that on a regular basis. Overall, I do believe that the documentation is helpful in that it gives quite extensive guidance on what is required. But I do at the same time think that the standard of diligence or the standard of critical analysis being required here is quite high. And it'll be interesting to see how that one pans out. Great. Thank you, Brian. And I think it's also important to note as well that the IAF Act doesn't distinguish between executive and non-executive yes. senior management in relation to the duty of responsibility. But the guidance does note that they're, I suppose, that they're, the extent of that duty will be assessed in the context of their role. Susan, turning to you now just to focus on the conduct standards, which Neve also mentioned in the introduction, could I please ask you to provide us with an overview of the scope and requirements in respect of the common and additional conduct standards? Sure. Thanks, Geraldine. And hello, everyone. Well, the conduct standards consist of the common conduct standards and additional conduct standards. So those former ones, the common conduct standards, apply to all individuals performing control functions, so including the PCFs, in all regulated firms. So the scope is broader than SEER. And these are basic standards, namely acting with honesty and integrity, acting with due skill, care and diligence, cooperating in good faith and without delay with regulators, acting in the best interests of customers and treating them fairly and professionally, and operating in compliance with standards of market conduct and trading venue rules. They're enshrined in law now. There are subsections of each of those standards as well outlined in legislation. So they're the first category. Now, the second is the additional conduct standards, and they apply to senior individuals performing PCF rules and individuals who exercise significant influence on the conduct of a firm's affairs. Those are the CF1 rules. So in total, the additional conduct standards apply to PCFs and the CF1 rules, again, in all regulated firms. Now, these are additional obligations on those senior people, which relate to running the part of the business for which they are responsible. And they include that the business is controlled effectively, that the business is conducted in accordance with its legal obligations, 
that any delegated tasks are assigned to an appropriate person with effective oversight, and that any information of which the central bank would reasonably expect notice in respect of the business is disclosed promptly and appropriately, including information giving rise to a suspicion of certain legal and regulatory breaches by the firm or an individual performing a controlled function. Now, it's proposed that these conduct standards uh, be applied from the 31st of this year. And detailed guidance, detailed draft guidance has been issued by the central bank on these standards. Uh, Similar to the duty of responsibility under SEER, the conduct standards also include a duty to take reasonable steps to meet the conduct standards. And Brian has, has covered that, it applies equally here. Now, this central bank guidance highlights that most individuals working in the financial services industry will likely consider that the conduct standards are reflective of the sound values to which they already hold themselves to. An additional point to note is that for firms in scope of SEER, an individual must be assigned P or 3, that is responsibility for embedding in the conduct standards throughout the firm. And for those firms outside the scope of SEER, the central bank considers that the CEO or equivalent be responsible and accountable for embedding these conduct standards throughout the firm. Thanks, Susan. And can you take us through what firms should do to inform and train their staff on the conduct standards and how they can effectively embed those standards into their organisations? Sure. So there's a legal obligation, this sort of statutory um, footing now. So there's a legal obligation on regulated firms to notify individuals and train staff on the conduct standards on an initial and an ongoing basis. Um, Now, the guidance provides that firms should ensure that individuals are clear on their obligations in respect of the conduct standards and specifically and importantly, I think, what is expected of them in the context of their role. So such training should be adequately embedded into the firm's day-to-day activities, including um, performance review process. Um, The guidance provides, uh, that's the central bank guidance, provides that firms should maintain up-to-date records regarding the notification of these standards to the individuals and records that individuals have completed the required training. Now, such records do not need to be submitted to the central bank, but they uh, must be available for review by the central bank if requested. So for firms in scope of SEER, the individual allocated that P or 3 rule should oversee training in respect of the conduct standards, otherwise by senior management. Now, there's also an obligation on firms to establish, maintain and give effect to policies on how the common conduct standards are integrated into the culture and conduct of the affairs of the firm. So firms should consider, I guess, how failure to meet the common conduct standards could be linked to matters such as performance review and and promotion. There's also another obligation, again, on a statutory basis, a legal obligation, on the firm to report to the central bank disciplinary action, which relates to breaches of the conduct standards. Now, the draft regulations define disciplinary action as meaning the issuing of a formal written warning or the suspension dismissal of the individual 
or the reduction or recovery of any of the individual's remuneration. You know, we would think that suspension, certainly in that context of that definition, is probably disciplinary sanction of suspension rather than suspension pending, you know, investigation, certainly in the context of reporting disciplinary action. Now, the central bank provides in the guidance that expects firms to apply due process in concluding disciplinary actions. And obviously, that's with an eye, we think, to the constitutional right of fair procedures, which is a particular feature of the Irish landscape, which differs to the UK when we're making comparisons to and fro in this space. The central bank also provides that it would expect to have already received the facts forming the basis of this disciplinary action where the firm or individual, the PCF or CF one, has already reported under the separate obligation relating to suspected prescribed contraventions. And this is an area where regulatory and employment legal advice would be important in terms of timing of reports. The guidance provides for firms in the scope of SEER. The PO role is responsible for the firm's reporting of disciplinary action arising from a breach of the conduct standards. And for firms not within the scope of SEER, the firm must still report a disciplinary action arising from breach to the central bank. And such reports should be made in writing in a timely manner, as soon as practicable, and in any case within five business days from when the disciplinary action has been concluded. Thanks, Susan. And I think there will be lots of employment issues that can arise out of those types of issues that you've mentioned. But to focus in on the key steps that employers can take now, could you take us through some key actions that employers could take to ensure that the conduct standards are complied with? Sure. So I guess firms should review and amend employment contracts, in particular those clauses and duties, compliance with policies and gross misconduct. They should update their policies. So that will include uh, disciplinary policies, performance assessment, remuneration bonus and whistleblowing policies uh, to refer and embed these conduct standards. And it should be noted that the conduct standards are, are broader than financial matters. So other policies such as bullying and, and sexual harassment policy should also be reviewed. And then briefly, firms need to put in place the required notifications to individuals on the, on the standards and they need to put in place initial and ongoing training bespoke for the, the relevant individuals. And lastly, I guess, put in place those processes to notify the central bank of breaches of the conduct standards and or, I guess, disciplinary actions in line with the relevant reporting timelines. Thanks, Susan. And then to talk about a breach, I suppose, what type of action can be taken where there is a failure to comply with the conduct standards and is there any defence available in those circumstances? Yeah, so the central bank can take enforcement action now directly against individuals, as, as Neve referred to earlier, for breaches of their obligations, rather than as before, only for their participation in breaches committed by the firm. Sanctions include monetary penalties too. As for defences, I guess a defence is that the individual took the reasonable steps to comply with the conduct standards, as Brian referred to before. I think this is interesting, though, that the central bank makes it clear in the consultation paper that powers of enforcement will be used in a targeted, proportionate way. So proportionality is a key theme in, in all of this. It's essential, the central bank say, that the new framework does not have a chilling effect on the recruitment of good quality individuals into the Irish financial system. The central bank also say that their approach to enforcement is consistent with the approach adopted in other jurisdictions where similar frameworks have brought significant benefits in terms of improved governance without 
material increases in enforcement activity. So they're seemingly, the central bank there, pointing to the UK, where there appears to be very few, you know, around two, I guess, up until last year, of financial penalties since the commencement of SEER. So that's running, you know, from about 2016 onwards. So that's an interesting sort of background to the enforcement side of things, Geraldine. That's excellent. Thank you for taking us through all of that. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. And now just to run through a couple of poll questions, if I could ask our attendees to please complete the polls that have appeared on your screen. So we'll run one now and one at the end of the session. But the first question, just to get your views on, is which aspects of the individual accountability framework is most in focus in your firm at the moment? And there are some options there for you to select around fitness and probity, conduct standards, the SEER regime or responsibility map statement of responsibilities. Also, just the second question is who is leading the individual accountability framework assessment and implementation project in your firm? And the options there again are on your screen. So whether it's compliance, HR, the CEO and or the board, or if you're leveraging from previous SMCR and other governance programs conducted in your group. And hopefully we can get the results on the screen now. So that shows that on the first one, the aspects of the IAF that are most in focus in your firms at the moment, it's a bit of a tie between the C and D, which are, are undoubtedly linked anyhow and one of the same. So it seems to be the SEER regime is coming out on top there with the conduct standards and fitness and property coming second and third. And then on the project plan, who is leading the IAF assessment and implementation project in your firm? Interesting to see that in the majority, it appears to be compliance department, but certainly with support from HR department also in some organizations, only 11% it shows the CEO and the board are leading it. And in 15%, it is firms are leveraging from previous governance programs run by the group. So that's um, just interesting to get that context. And I'd like to use those results also just to turn to Magella now. Magella, we're delighted to have you join us here today. And given your experience in the industry, I think it's really useful to, to get your insights. Could you share with us how you view this framework and what do you see as the key challenges for employers in its implementation? Thanks, Geraldine. It's great to be with you this morning. So overall, I think the framework's really well laid out and I see it as a positive for the industry. Uh, It's natural that there may be some concerns on how this will be implemented and personal liability. And we saw the same in the UK at the outset of the SMCR process, but those concerns haven't been realised in the UK. And the feedback shows that the UK regime has been really well received. And whilst there's notable differences in relation to this regime, I would expect that overall it'll likewise be looked upon positively once it's in place. I think your your second question in relation to the challenges with Mm. implementation. So there I would say, I suppose, first of all, and I think Brian talked about this a little bit earlier as well, the need to mobilise quite quickly to meet stipulated timelines. And and also the fact that there's no set template to adopt, given the partially principle-based approach and the focus on proportionality. And that can always make it a little bit more difficult to, to look at application. 
Likewise, the broad base of staff that will be captured under conduct rules, that has implications for firms in terms of the scale of training, attestations, diligence, and so forth to manage. So that's a large book of work for firms to undertake. And there will be additional bespoke challenges in various firms, particularly around governance structures. So, for example, like where there are currently shared or overlapping responsibilities, matrix reporting lines, potential application to holding companies, outsourcing arrangements, all of these will be complicating factors that need to be looked at and and can make it more challenging to, to go through the implementation process. And of course, as well, thinking about firms, non-exec, director populations and how the application to those individuals is managed also. Thanks a million, Magella. And I think it'd be great to get your perspective on the reasonable steps requirement. Would you have any guidance or recommendations for firms in relation to the duty for BCF holders to take reasonable steps to avoid a regulatory breach or how can they get comfortable with this requirement? Sure. So I'd say the reality is like PCF holders will already be undertaking reasonable steps every day, but they likely aren't processing or thinking about their activities as such. So first of all, I think as a starting point, if you're if you're a PCF holder, you need to look at all your responsibilities. So the prescribed, inherent and other responsibilities and for each one that is allocated to you. I would say to break break it down into the constituent parts, what sits within that responsibility, and then map your reasonable steps accordingly. So map in what you're doing around things like resource review, your MI flows, processes in place, meetings for oversight and so forth. And make sure that this is documented and revisited regularly because you want to ensure that it's all happening in practice and on an ongoing basis. The good thing about doing this exercise is it should also likely help identify any areas where there are gaps or where there's weaknesses in terms of being able to demonstrate those reasonable steps. And so it gives an opportunity to make adjustments as well. Secondly, just to say PCF holders, I think it's good practice to just develop a system that works for them to enable recording of key decisions, day-to-day challenge provided and actions taken and so forth. And I suppose when we were talking in preparation for this, we were saying, you know, reading minutes of meetings actually becomes a lot more important in this context as well. And I know there's the draft guidance published does certainly note that when determining responsibility, it may be necessary to consider other sources of information in addition to the the management responsibility maps and the statements of responsibilities, such as minutes of meetings, for example, and emails, which might in practice demonstrate how responsibilities are allocated across the firm. So it puts certain emphasis on that. What do you think HR should be working on with compliance now, Magella, and in the near future in order to get ready for the implementation of the framework? Sure. So Brian set out some priority deliverables a little earlier. So I think if firms aren't already doing so, they should make sure that a program has been established and it's clear who's working on this, whose responsibility, external support needed and so forth. Secondly, I would say communication is really key. So communicating with their staff and broader stakeholders, possibly in group entities, 
in terms of staff, people are no doubt reading about this in the press and wondering how it applies to them. And the focus that I've seen over the, the last couple of years has been very heavily on SEER, but the conversation now has tilted to the broader regime and the conduct rules. So I would expect that the CF populations are keen to understand what this means for them. That makes sense. And just a last question, Magella, is I think it'll be of interest to people to, to compare and contrast how similar this framework is to the UK SMCR framework. Do you mind touching on that point? So I would say at a conceptual and overall framework level, it, it's quite similar. There are, however, important differences in both the requirements being placed on individuals and scope of the application. So, for example, the nature of the prescribed and inherent responsibilities and the application to all non-exec directors. So I think if firms have exposure to SMCR, then they will have tools they can leverage and a good starting base. But there's still work to do in adapting that to meet to the CBI requirements. That makes sense. Great. Thank you for those insights. Brian, if I might turn back to you, please, just to consider the fitness and property certification requirements. I know many employers will be familiar with this regime that's currently in place, but it would be helpful if you could expand on what this means under the new framework and also what the certification requirement involves and what changes HR directors need to be aware of now to make these processes to build them into yeah, ready for practice. It. Yeah. Yeah. From a regulatory perspective, this aspect of the proposal isn't really that dramatic. It's really just adding a certification layer on top of a process that should already be there. So I suppose if I could be flippant, if you have a good process in place already, well, then this shouldn't be anything too significant. But I think the experience on the ground is when it comes to firms conducting due diligence from a fitness and probity perspective, when you're dealing with a new joiner, it tends to be very robust because it's a stranger you're dealing with and you want to make sure that they can get approved and, and, and you're right. But once the individual is in and up and running, the views perhaps from the CBI is that employers are a little bit more inconsistent and it's a little bit more patchy as to the extent to which they are conducting sufficient ongoing due diligence in regard to existing staff, fitness and probity. And I think that's why we saw the CBI issue guidance notes on fitness and probity due diligence a number of years ago. And then we saw the more recent Dear CEO letter, which would absolutely suggest the CBI's perception of the market is that employers aren't doing as much as they would like them to be doing. The requirement itself, it applies to all control functions. So we are talking about a much larger cohort of people than we were talking about when we just were talking about the senior executive function or the, the PCF group. The obligation itself applies where A, an employer on a reasonable basis can conclude that somebody does meet the fitness and probity standards and B, that individual agrees in writing that they will comply with the fitness and probity standards and what's more, that they agree to notify the employer if anything changes. And where an employer reaches that conclusion, the employer may then or must then certify to the CBI that whatever particular employee we're talking about has been certified as, a, as fit and proper. The certification will be valid for 12 months, which I suppose indirectly triggers now this annual certification process, and, and that's what we're talking about. The employer is required to keep all documentation upon which they reach their conclusion for a period of six years after the individual has ceased being a CF. So 
actually that could be quite a lengthy period of time, depending on how long somebody is in a, a CF role for. And one really interesting point in the regulations is in regard to disciplinary action. And Susan kind of touched upon this already in the context of the conduct standards. It provides that where an individual has been subject to disciplinary action, that the employer has a reporting obligation to the CBI. Now, there's a couple of points come out of that. It talks about this being a reporting obligation where the disciplinary action relates to their fitness and probity, and in particular, breach of the conduct standards or the additional conduct standards or financial services legislation generally. So I wonder, is that a slight narrowing of what we saw three or four years ago when it looked like any sort of conduct might require to be reported to the CBI? Or maybe you might interpret it as the remit of things that go to one's integrity and honesty is quite broad anyway. But we'll have to see how that one is interpreted. But perhaps the more important point is in regard to the conundrum we looked at when we had our steer event in the Western last September. At that point, the question came up around what happens if you're in the middle of a certification process for an employee and an allegation is raised against them? So in the world that you and I live in as employment lawyers from an employment law perspective, you can't, as a matter of due process, say to the CBI, Brian is no longer fit and proper because that allegation hasn't been proven. You haven't got to the end of the, the, the process. But from a compliance perspective, I can fully understand how a compliance lead might be very nervous about saying to the CBI that Brian is fit and proper because they may see that as misleading the regulator. And, and we've all been on calls where you can see this clash between the HR director who's saying, well, you can't tell the CBI and the compliance operator who's saying, well, you must. So the regulations now make this clear that if disciplinary action is taken, you must notify. And I would read that as action is when you've got to the end of the process. And again, we keep an eye on that one. In terms of the next steps, it's really the same audit process again. Have a look at what process you have and identify where there are gaps. If you have a decent process in place already, it's really just a matter of the HR director or the compliance officer building in the certification process on top of it. And likewise, building in scope for notification to the, the regulator. And I think employees should understand that that is a consequence where the employer can no longer certify them as fit and proper. You would also build into that an obligation on the employee to self-certify. That's part of it. And in practice, that can work very well because the employee will know themselves that if they mislead or if they don't answer that question truthfully, that that separately can become a disciplinary issue. I think where you're going to run into real difficulties here is essentially where you can no longer certify somebody as fit and proper. And what do you do then? Yeah, and certainly that is going to throw up quite a lot of issues in practice. If time permits, we would run just one last poll, just three questions, which should appear on your screen now. Just some questions around the extent to which you have any concerns around the implementation of the individual accountability framework and then options for you to select which is the most acute concern you have. Also, another question on what you see as your firm's next task in its IAF assessment and implementation project. And there's a third question and it's, in your view, are the proposed deadlines for implementation of the IAF achievable? A simple yes or no on that one. And we'll display the results on screen, which I think are really useful just to see where others are at on their preparations and what are their key areas for concern. And then we'll turn just to Neve to give us a brief roundup on the timing for implementation and what are the key dates and deadlines that we need to be aware of on that side of things. 
nothing like the delivery of uh, bad news at the end of the webinar, Geraldine. So <laughs> exactly. a couple, uh, couple of things to point out here. So the Act is definitely commenced, right? So we're expecting the investigation enforcement Zalewski reforms to be commenced first, but the minister's indicated end of year for the commencement of the rest of the Act. Now, that dovetails with what the Central Bank have said in respect of the business common and additional conduct standards, the certification regime and the application of FMP to holding companies all being required on or about the 31st of December 2023. So that timeline gives us about nine nine months officially. And then the Central Bank have also indicated for the allocation of responsibilities piece that coming in this year, you've until the 1st of July 2024. So again, tipping over into the 15, 16 month period for that. But that's the straight line interpretation. And as everyone has heard on this webinar from their own readings and internal discussions, you'd be very, very clear that this, while we are happily saying there's, you know, it's not entirely new. There's a lot of things to build on while firms definitely have a lot they can leverage while there's good clarity in the act itself, where there's uh, great examples and detail given in the central bank guidance in their consultation paper. There is a lot to do here. And probably what I would stress is it's also the interaction. So it's not just the line by line. We need to do FMP now. We need your conduct standards. It's the point that Magella makes, the point Brian was speaking to. It's the interaction between them. So how do you get happy with conduct standards without, if you're within scope of SEER, and that is done by a phase basis, without having a look at some of those statements of responsibilities and, ma- and management responsibility maps? How do you look at conduct rules for your CF? So Magella made this point very clearly. If you're not happy with, you know, how the fitness and probity regime and the enhancements of that line up. So really, it's the combination of them across the legislative regime. And the, the big takeaway from this webinar, of course, is not just the compliance and, and regulatory lens, but a key employment lens and how they both dovetail to secure implementation. So timeline ostensibly is, you know, nine to 15 months. But if you're starting in August, you're going to be really, really pressed for time. Absolutely. But uh, interestingly, from our poll, Neve, the majority of respondents, 56% have said that in their view, the proposed deadlines for implementation are achievable. 44% said no. So not an overwhelming majority, but certainly a majority, which is positive. There's a couple of questions for you, Brian. One is on the point about regulatory references. Yes. To clarify, is that definitely gone? It definitely seems it's gone from everything we've seen here. It wasn't in the, the version of the legislation we saw last year. There was wording that suggested there was still room for it to be included. You'll recall from some of the earlier webinars and events we held in regard to the proposals that that was, from an employment law perspective, probably the one thing we were the most concerned about. So however daunting some people might find what the final regime looks like, I think it would be a whole lot more restrictive for employers if regulatory references had been included. I think it also points to a broader theme that the employment law concerns that have been raised over the past three or four years do seem to have been listened to in the course of the evolution of this legislation. And Susan touched upon a couple of points already, so that's definitely a positive. Great, thank you. And Another question, Brian, perhaps for both Brian and Neave, actually, is what do you see as the most important task for a HR director returning to their desk today to start on now for this project? I would say from the employment law perspective, and to keep this very simple, I would say read the documentation that has come out from the CBI in the last month. I know an awful lot of our clients have talked to us about it, so I get the impression a lot of people have read it, but if people haven't, I think it's well worth a read because you'll see what level of detail is there. I think to some extent, it will take the panic out of things. Okay, Neve, anything to add on your side of things? 
Yeah, so from, from my perspective, very practically, I would say, you know, have a chat with your compliance, you're the head of business nominated to look at this uh, and your legal counterparts, right? You guys will be the fulcrum of implementation across all the pieces. So really, um, to echo Brian's actually earlier point, gathering what you have now, assessing what you have now, and then benchmarking that off against what the requirements are, that will really kind of ensure that you have your own roadmap quite quickly. And if you need to, you know, affect any changes, you'll have identified those immediately as well. So the real practical point of making sure you have a good task force as well as all your steering committees, but you've that core group of four that will work together and support each other with interpretations, which should ensure fewer potholes and speed bumps when you get to the application of the regime. Thank you. And Brian, a couple of questions on the statement of responsibilities and the responsibilities map and whether the guidance requires those documents to be submitted to the central bank for approval or only on request. Yes, I saw that question. So I'm glad we have an opportunity to clarify what I was talking about in in step seven, I think it was in the process. It is on request. It's not an automatic obligation the way I think there was in the UK. So there isn't a wholesale step here where all employers will have to do it but I think it's one you have to be ready for because that could be adding in a lot of time at the end of the process when maybe you are running out of time. And another question on the fitness and probity regime, a practical question, if an employer can't certify an existing employee as fit and proper, what can an employer do? What happens? Yes, this is a classic example of where regulatory law and employment law clash And we have had two cases in the past. I think there were the only two fitness and probity cases to go to the high court so far where the employer was actually looking to dismiss on the basis of fitness and probity. But actually, the the matters went as far as the high court. And it was clear from the, the initial questions we were getting from the judge and the assessment of the case that the judge was really calling out the the obvious clash between employment law and regulatory law and that employment law doesn't necessarily suggest you should be dismissing somebody in those circumstances. And we've seen some cases before the WRC as well, where employers had what anybody in the financial services world would have thought was a very clear case for dismissing somebody based on conduct and also based on the fitness and probity requirement to no longer employ somebody if they are not fit and proper. And in that case, the WRC held that the employee in the centre of the case had encouraged the customer to forge a client's check or a customer's check. So you would have thought that went to the root of fitness and probity and honesty, but the WRC felt that while they should have been sanctioned, it didn't necessarily warrant dismissal. So to get back to your question, what do you do? I think, first of all, you need to run a process to determine whether the facts are proven or not. Usually the way this pans out in practice is it's a regular employment disciplinary process. And if the allegations are proven against the individual, if it's something relating to honesty, given the sector that we're in, the likelihood is the employee will be dismissed anyway. So in most cases, you don't actually have to get on to separately considering whether they are fit and proper. So you can avoid that issue. But you could have a scenario where, for example, it doesn't relate to honesty or integrity. It relates to perhaps competence. So maybe somebody is a poor performer in a particular role. And as a result, they don't meet the fitness and probity standards anymore on the competence front but their behavior doesn't warrant dismissal. That can be a really tricky scenario because on the one side, you are no longer permitted to employ them in the role. So we had this once a number of years ago and what we had to agree with the individual was that they would be basically taken out of certain parts of their role, which were subject to the fitness and probity tests until they 
reached the required standard and then they were kind of let back into it. But uh, in practice, it doesn't come up that much in Ireland. We have seen a survey in the UK which suggested something like 44% of employers had had to dismiss an employee because they they didn't meet the fitness and probity equivalent tests over there. So uh, maybe it's something that we will see coming up more often now into the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can expect that. And there's a question on the point that you were raising, Susan, about disciplinary action and notifications to the central bank. The question is, if a firm takes disciplinary action as a result of a breach of a conduct standard, for example, but the individual is appealing that sanction, how should the firm deal with the reporting obligation? Yeah, good question. And actually, the guidance, the central bank guidance addresses this. The timelines are still there. The firm obviously still needs to report within those timelines the disciplinary action, but obviously including the right to appeal and details of the appeal route. And then once the appeal takes place, then simply update the central bank in the same way as before. Thank you. And I think a last question for you, Brian. What does an employer do if they can't agree a statement of responsibility with a a senior executive? It's a good question. I think in that scenario, an employer is going to have to look at the options. It could be that there's a negotiated exit agreed with the individual as to whether or not they want to do it. This all comes back to on the extent to which their role is going to be changed. But if we assume the level of change is something that is material and could, in theory, lead to a constructive dismissal, well, then that is one option that you could see happening. Second is that the employer could, in theory, look at restructuring the role. But again, that clearly could be open to challenge depending on the extent to which the role is being restructured. Or the third option is one that Neve and I had discussed in the past, and maybe I'll pass over to you to look at that option, but it could be something where a concession is agreed with the with the regulator. And have you anything additional to add on that, Neve? Yeah, and, and it's really just again about this point about kind of trying to to figure out again what you you know how you've actually performed your role for years. A lot of substantive and sectoral legislation requirements and organisational design and competence have been in place for a while. So firms may well have persons in particular roles or certain reporting structures that when they actually match it up against the IF guidelines and regulations, central bank say, look, we've a bit of dissonance here. It's not clear, right? Engaging with that early, as Brian says, understanding who's performing what role, giving a substantive submission to central bank in terms of actually how you feel you can meet and demonstrate it, albeit ostensibly it might be slightly different to what's anticipated or expected on the face of the regulation of compliance. That's really something to think about and to think about early because you can have scenarios whereby you know, a firm has designed its organizational controls in a particular way. And I say certain key individuals are in certain seats and you don't want a scenario whereby operational risk or key person risk becomes a, a challenge. So everybody does want this to work. And what we would say is, you know, do have a think about it. And if you feel there is a case where you need to diverge slightly or adapt slightly how you would implement it in contrast to what the articulated expectation is, you know, do research that, come up with a clear and cogent rationale and engage with your supervisors early to see if there is a a manner in which that would become acceptable. Great, very helpful. Thank you very much, everybody, for all our panellists, for their contribution today and their insights. Really, really helpful. And I hope you all agree. And thanks to all our attendees for joining our webinar today also. And I hope you found it useful. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot dunn at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. 
It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.